heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. When you decide to follow Jesus, you are making the decision, whether you know it or not, to become a student of the Bible. And every moment you devote to studying the Scriptures, every moment you hold a magnifying glass to the pages of the Bible you are cultivating a sense for the way words work and the way sentences work and the way paragraphs work together to tell a story. Truly, you become a student of literature in the highest sense of the word because the Bible is the greatest written work in human history. Literally, by reading the words of Scripture, you are honing tools that will equip you to read everything that has ever been written. Because in the truest sense of the words, the Bible is the greatest story that's ever been written. And it's especially important because it's true. I say all this because perhaps for this passage more than any other, you've got to get your tools out. This passage that we're going to read today is loaded with powerful meaning. This passage is in a lot of ways the centerpiece of the book of Samuel. But you're not going to see that meaning. You're not going to notice the brilliant power of this passage unless you read carefully. In a word, you won't understand this passage until you treat it as masterful literature. 
One of the most important principles for understanding the Old Testament, especially for understanding the history within the Old Testament, is the centrality and significance of poetry. Poetry operates almost like a user's guide to the historical stories we read in the Old Testament. Inevitably, when you, read, when you open your Bible and begin reading Old Testament stories, you'll find those stories interrupted by song. The most significant stories are punctuated, beginning, middle, end, with poetry. And in almost every case, the poetry that punctuates the biblical historical stories of the Old Testament is there to teach us the meaning of those stories. Let me give you an example. Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 record the same event twice. Both Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 point our attention to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. In both, we learn that God split the sea miraculously. In both, we learn that Israel crosses over on dry land. In both, we learn that Pharaoh's army is drowned in the waters. The same event twice. So what's the point of the second record? A better question might be, how do the two records differ? The first record is standard prose, reads just like any other historical text you might find in a library. But the second record is poetry. And the second record teaches readers the significance of the first. We know that God split the waters. We know that Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry land. We know that Pharaoh's army was drowned. But we don't yet know why until we read these words. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and the Lord has become my salvation. That's why. Why were the people delivered miraculously? Because by your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength. Why was the strongest military force in the world drowned in the Red Sea? Because the Lord is a warrior. Because your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. That's why. It's not enough to know what happened to the people of Israel. You must know why it happened. And poetry answers the why. The key to understanding the passage we're reading today is located within the poetry which surrounds it. So I want to read the story itself, and then I want to read the poetry that surrounds it so that you and I can together answer the why of this passage. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 31. Before we begin reading, I think it's important to note that we're reading two chapters consecutively that apparently fall in two different books. We're going to begin reading in 1 Samuel 31, and we're going to finish reading in 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're doing this because that's the structure of this passage Not because I needed to go ahead and pick up the pace because the series is super long. I feel it, guys, when you imply it in your conversations to me. I feel it. (laughs) See, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were originally only one book. Just one. 
It begins in the first verse of 1 Samuel 1 and ends in the final verse of 2 Samuel 24. And it was simply called Samuel. When the Bible began to be distributed widely in Greek, the Greek version split the book in half for reasons that must have seemed appropriate at the time, but were actually terrible. The reason I mention this is because the death of Saul is the centerpiece of the book of Samuel in more ways than one. It represents a major shift in the kingdom of Israel from the leadership of Saul to the leadership of David. It represents the end of David's wanderings in exile. And also because the words are located pretty close to the center of the book. You wouldn't know that this story is the centerpiece because the present division of Samuel splits the story in half, leading many readers to take chapter 1 as an independent story, the end of one book, and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel as an independent story, the beginning of its sequel. But I want to read it together because that's what the author intended for us to do. So if you're ready, let's start in 1 Samuel 31 and we'll just keep on going. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the city throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshun. When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshun and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where are you? Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. 
and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gaboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered him, I am a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down, so he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Okay, let's get started. This story opens on the same battlefield that's remained central to the developing plot since chapter 28. The Philistine army has gathered against Israel to finally, ultimately decimate the Israelite army and to end the reign of Saul, their first king. It's worth noting that the people of Israel have faced the Philistine armies before, but in every case, victory came by the hand of David. But where is David now? Saul has cast him out of the kingdom. The mighty victor of Israel is a refugee among the Philistines. And now David, for all Saul knows, stands against the people of Israel. So here is Saul facing an army led by his greatest enemies, and Saul is terrified. He's terrified of losing the kingdom, and he's terrified of losing his own life. So terrified, in fact, that he's willing to abandon the covenant by communing with the dead. Saul and two of his men disguise themselves and flee to a pagan medium to consult the dead spirit of Samuel while the Philistine army stages rank and file against the inferior Israeli forces. Samuel's spirit is successfully raised from the grave, you may remember, and he promises prophetically that within 24 hours, Saul, his sons, and his army will fall. As we open to 1 Samuel 31, we immediately learn that Samuel's final prophecy is fulfilled precisely. Within 24 hours, Saul and his forces are overrun by the Philistines, and Saul's own sons, including the faithful Jonathan, are dead on a bloody battlefield. Saul alone is left, mortally wounded by an arrow. And in his final moments, after years of stubborn refusal, Saul recognizes his cursed fate and he pleads with his armor bearer to end his life. 
Now, this isn't the first time that we're reminded that the faithful ought never stretch their hand out against the Lord's anointed. Like David, Saul's armor bearer refuses to strike down God's chosen king. So Saul kills himself. And tragically, his armor bearer follows his example. Thus ends the house of Saul, the first king of Israel. His death is as suicidal as his reign, for any rebellion against the Most High God is functional suicide. When the Philistines discover his body, they cut off his head and the heads of his sons, and then they parade these fallen warriors naked before their gods. Rumor of this humiliation is whispered throughout Israel until the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead travel 15 miles overnight to retrieve their bodies and secure for them an honorable end. As the camera pans to David, we learn that Israel's devastating loss actually coincided with David's miraculous victory. Both battles, Israel's clash with the Philistine army and David's clash with the Amalekite raiders, both battles are happening at the same time. As David, the faithful king, marches home victorious, Saul, the faithless king, lies dead on the battlefield. As David's men rebuild their homes, Saul's men are abandoning their homes. The scene shifts when, unexpectedly, an exhausted warrior stumbles upon David's camp. He says that Saul and his sons are dead, and he offers indisputable evidence, Saul's crown and armlet. Apparently, this Amalekite expected a reward, for he brags that he himself stole Saul's last breath. Here we stumble across strong tones of irony. Saul was cursed and lost the kingdom because he refused to finally totally destroy the Amalekite people, though the law demanded it. Saul refused to end the Amalekites. And now he pleads with an Amalekite to end him. Such is the suicidal end of all disobedience. Those things we refuse to yield will secure our miserable end. Remember that David refused to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed, though he had reason enough. Though Saul sought David's life for years, he refused to act against God's chosen king. It's an expression of David's unwavering faith in God's plan and in God's work and in God's capability Though Saul threatened to take his life, cut him off, chased him through death's valley, David refused to harm him in any way because Saul's life belonged to God's. belonged to God. This is the disposition of Saul's armor bearer. This is the disposition of David. And this ought to have been the disposition of the Amalekite. Again, in a moment of literary brilliance, we learn that David is willing to do that which Saul refused to do. He stretched out his hand against the Amalekites, simultaneously avenging the Lord's anointed and fulfilling the expectation of the law to cleanse the land of this wicked people. And that's where our story ends. Saul and his sons are dead. David and his men avenge their deaths and weep in mourning. 
That's what happened, but what does it mean? We have the what, now we ask why. As you might expect, this story is followed by poetry. David and his men weep over the lost lives of Saul and his sons. And in his lamentation, David writes the following words. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. How the mighty have fallen. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Ask yourself, why would he repeat those words? Three times those words are repeated. How the mighty have fallen. Saul, the tall and handsome prince of Israel. Saul, who stood a head taller and six inches broader than any man in Israel. Saul, the king like the nations, is dead. How the mighty have fallen. This poem, in part, answers the question, why? Why did Saul fall? Why was, his ha- why was the house of Saul ruined? Humiliated on a bloody battlefield. Paraded naked on the pagan streets. Why? These words repeated three times. How the mighty have fallen. Those words are a hint. They get us one step closer to answering why. I've mentioned already that this story and the poem which concludes this story occur in the center of the book of Samuel. Not just the physical center of the book, but the narrative center. This story is the centerpiece. It's a hinge. And when you're studying a literary masterpiece, you don't merely read the centerpiece of the work without attempting to draw connections. This book is masterful, so the connections are surely there. Your job is to follow the dotted line that the author has clearly drawn. So when I realized that this story was more significant than it seemed, I began to look for connections And those words repeated three times, how the mighty have fallen, those words itched at me. They reminded me of something important. They reminded me of Hannah's song. 
Do you remember Hannah's song? I read it to you at the very beginning of this sermon. And we, when we first began to read this book, I suggested that Hannah's song was the key to understanding the entire book of Samuel. It's the thread that connects everything. And I'm not going to reread the entire poem again, but I want you to listen to, the, to a few lines. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble shall bind on strength. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. Hannah sings this song, exulting in the God who humbles the mighty, but who gives strength to the faithful. She praises the God who exalts the poor, but cuts off the wicked. And she looks forward to the day when the people of God will be rescued, not by the might of men, but by the strength of God on display in the work of a faithful king. Hannah's song warns us that the might of man will not prevail because that's not the way of God's kingdom. And David's song reminds us that the might of man will not prevail because that's not the way of God's kingdom. This world worships the mighty. But in the kingdom of God, the mighty will fall and their bows will be broken, but the feeble will bind on strength. Okay, so if we're careful readers, we'll identify this connection. Hannah's prophecy that the mighty would fall and that the feeble would bind on strength. We can follow that prophecy to its fulfillment in the death of Saul the mighty and tall and handsome, the king like the nations, who by all accounts had what it takes to lead the people, except faithfulness. If we're careful, readers will draw connections from the song of Hannah to the song of David. How the mighty have fallen. David's words, we now realize, are something more than mere mourning. These words are a profound reflection on the reign of the king who is just like the nations. The bows of the mighty will be broken, but the Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The might of men has no place in the kingdom of God. The Lord will give strength to his king. That's the why. That's the meaning of Saul's death. And that's the meaning of Saul's reign. The people of Israel asked for a king like the nations, a king who was mighty to deliver them from their enemies. But that isn't the way of God's kingdom. Not by might will man prevail. So now we found a pattern. At the beginning of the book of Samuel, we find a poem. And this poem teaches us how to read the stories to come. And at the center of the book, we find a poem, and that poem teaches us how to read the stories that precede it. Beginning. Middle. And do you know what I thought when I saw that pattern? What do you want to bet that there's a poem at the end of Samuel that says something just like this? Turn with me to 2 Samuel 22. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because this poem is very long. 
But I want you to see what the author has worked hard to do. I want you to see that the book of Samuel is an extraordinary work of literature. It's a masterpiece that caref- that's carefully woven together to teach us how to understand a very important moment in Israel's history. From the outset, we're given po- poetic guidance. At the center, we're given poetic guidance. And at the very end, we're given poetic guidance that teaches us the meaning of the story of Saul and the meaning of the story of David. Listen to these words. And I'm just going to cherry pick, guys. So I can give you the actual selections I'm going to choose, but I encourage you to read the entire thing. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From His temple, He heard my voice and my cry came to His ears. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me. From they who were, what? Too mighty for me. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Three times these songs resound. God is mighty to save. God, not men. God is mighty to save. He humbles the mighty and He stifles the proud. For the only true strength is the strength of God's mighty arm to rescue His people by sending His anointed King. That's the meaning of the book of Samuel. That's the meaning of the reign of Saul. That's the meaning of the life of David. Three poems resound in chorus, beginning, middle, and end. Three poems resounding with the same theme. Not by might will man prevail. Not by might, but only by the strength of God through the gift of an anointed king. And what's so beautiful is that this is, the message of this book is the cry of the redeemed. God rescued me from my strong enemy. God rescued me from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and their weapons of war perished. 
For not by might shall a man prevail, but the Lord will give strength to his king. The song of Samuel is the song of the redeemed. And that question, what a poignant question. For who is God but the Lord? That's the question we answer with our lives. Who is God but the Lord? Saul is a shadow. The people of Israel traded God for Saul. It's right there, 1 Samuel 12, right there explicitly. The people of Israel traded God as king for Saul as king. Saul is a shadow of everything we run to that is not God. Saul is a shadow of this world's promises. Follow me and you'll be healthy and happy and prosperous. Follow me and you'll be safe and secure. Saul is a shadow of the would-be kings. They promise joy by the might of their strong hand. But who is God but the Lord? To whom do you flee when you're afraid? What satisfies your most secret desires? Where do you invest your time? Don't trust in the might of would-be kings. Would-be kings seem able. They make shiny promises, but in the end they lead their armies to utter destruction. And all the redeemed will shout when Christ returns and defeats the armies of would-be kings. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Instead, trace the shadow of the coming king. Hannah's song reads true. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Do you believe those words? He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Do you believe those words? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Do you believe those words? Choose your King. Will you spend time and money and your mind investing in a would-be king? Wall Street is mighty. Your employer is mighty. That next job is mighty. Your bank account is mighty. These would-be kings promise much. Will you invest in their kingdom? Sex is mighty. Pornography is mighty. Adultery is mighty. These would-be kings promise much. Will you invest in their kingdom? Your reputation is mighty. Your social network is mighty. The response you receive from clever cutting posts and underhanded comments is mighty. Will you invest in this kingdom? Or will you leave it all behind for a better kingdom? Christ 
the coming king calls you. Follow me, he says. Like David, it may mean fleeing society to the wilderness. You may have to lose family. You may have to lose people. You may have to lose jobs. For the promise of a better kingdom. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future sure. The price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath I long to follow Jesus. For he has promised that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. He is the strong King. Invest in His kingdom. Let's take the supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.